So, early last December, my wife and I, we both contracted COVID. She ended up being quite sick. There was no need for her to go to hospital, but she was manned down for about five days with really bad flu-like symptoms, whereas uh, my symptoms, on the other hand, were relatively mild. I had a nasty cough. I had a, you know, one of those post-nasal drips that just, I mean, there's no words to describe. But in all, you know, all things considered, I was in much better shape than what she was. The problem was, after about five days, her symptoms started to dissipate, but mine just remained. So I kept coughing and coughing and coughing and coughing with this post-nasal thing. And eventually, the day after Christmas, I ended up at the doctor again with middle ear inflammation. Now, as you can imagine, throughout this time, I prayed and trusted God for healing. But my symptoms remained. The first week in January, we went uh, to close friends of ours in Mossel Bay. I was... I guess you can say, determined to have my holiday. Our second or third day there, Stephen Corkill, I think who most of you will either know, remember, who leads the Muscle Bay PM congregation, he came for a, for a coffee and a catch-up. And while we're having coffee and just, you know, talking nonsense, it suddenly dawned on me. I have two elders at my disposal. And what does the Bible say? You know, when you're sick, call on the elders. They'll pray for you. And I thought... I'm going to ask these guys to pray for me. I mean, how could it not solve the problem? Right? And so I did. And so they did. And, and Stephen uh, prayed a beautiful, moving prayer. And do you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Well, at least where my symptoms were concerned. Clearly, I should have asked one of the Durbanville elders. Rather. <clears throat> I've heard it said that Durbanville is where the juice is. Now, fast forward about two weeks, and I'm back at work, obviously back in Cape Town, back at work, um, but the symptoms are all still there, still suffering. And to be honest, by this time, I was struggling to understand why this was happening. Why hasn't God healed me yet? I mean, at that stage, it had been more than a month already. So what was I missing? Around that time, it's, it's, uh, it's middle Jan, the one morning I was running very late, and I ended up having almost no time for my quiet time. Um, I'm fortunate, I work flexi hours, so normally I go and drop off the kids at school, and then I go back home, I have my quiet time, and then a bit later on, I can leave for work. Now that particular morning, middle, middle Jan, I ran very late, and if you have kids, you'll know exactly what I mean by that. Just some mornings, it's just, it's just chaos, right? So I ended up having literally five minutes of my quiet time. And I thought, well, under normal circumstances, I would just leave it. Figuring or reasoning, what's the point to a rushed quiet time? I mean, what, what can you possibly get from just five minutes in the Word? Just five minutes in prayer, right? But I felt compelled to do it. I don't know how else to explain it. I felt compelled. So I sat down on my bed with my Bible feeling somewhat silly, to be quite honest, figuring, okay, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll read for two, pray for three, sounds like a good you know, ratio. And at the time, I was busy reading through Abraham's journey in, um, in Genesis. And I, I went on where I left off the, the previous 
uh, day, and I started with Genesis 17, verse 1. And it says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. As I read this, something happened. I don't quite know how to explain it. So forgive me if I, if I struggle to find the words. But in that moment, I was overcome with an awe, a reverential godly fear of him. He is almighty God, El Shaddai, all-powerful, all-sufficient. My response should be to walk before him and be blameless. In that, in that moment, I saw something of him, his, his beauty, his, his majesty, his greatness. It was just a glimpse. It was just a glimpse. You know, as if you're looking through the crack in the door, as if you're seeing something out of the corner of your eye, when you look, it's gone. It was just a glimpse. But I was ruined. I was undone. I also became acutely aware of how my walk, how often my walk before him was not well-pleasing to him. You see that? Well, it was there a second ago. There you go. Um, that walk before me literally translates walk in a way that is well-pleasing to God. So in that moment, <laughs> sitting there on my bed, all I could do was to praise him for what I saw and to repent. To praise and repent with lots of tears. So the next moment, my alarm goes off, and I have to get up and go to work. I would have been late for meetings. And if you heard my preach last year on how I got the job, you would realize I wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize it. <laughs> so I get up, and I rush out of the room, and I, I rush past my wife. But I'm, I'm, I'm busy crying, so she's just looking at me with this, what the heck is going on with you, look on her face. And she asked me, and she says, are you okay? And all I could manage was, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I can remember getting my, getting my stuff, getting my, uh, my laptop, throwing it in the car, all the while thinking, what just happened? What was that? What just happened? So I get in the car, I start driving, I cannot stop crying. And... I keep telling myself, Devet, compose yourself. Compose yourself. Anybody who sees you on the end one day is going to think, this guy is having a mental breakdown. <laughs> I was halfway to Cape Town when I suddenly realized my symptoms are gone. My symptoms are gone. That non-stop coughing for more than a month, that post-nasal drip that made me feel like I was drowning, it was gone. You know, at first I, I told myself, let's not overreact. Let's not jump to conclusions. Maybe, maybe all your crying, just clear out your sinuses really well, you know? But the symptoms didn't return. You know, right now, if you're thinking this is a testimony on healing, I can't fault you. And I guess in a way it actually is but it's actually a testimony on beholding him. Beholding him. That morning I saw something of him. 
He revealed a glimpse of himself. It was just a moment of intimacy. Just a moment. But I, I haven't been the same since. It changed me. Why did it change me? To what end? <laughs> that is the million-dollar question. And the answer speaks directly to the purpose of our existence. To understand, let's go right to the end of Colossians 1. Colossians 1.29. It says, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. To this end I labor. So Paul is saying, okay, I'm laboring towards achieving a very specific end or purpose. To this end, I labor. But we don't yet know what that goal or purpose is. Now, without a proper understanding of the term labor, we might think he's simply working towards achieving something. So let's take a look quickly. What does this word labor mean? Listen to this. It says, it involves toil and weariness and sorrow. It means to engage in hard work, and implies difficulties and trouble. It speaks of intense toil, even sweating, and straining to the point of exhaustion. And the present tense signifies continually. In the Greek, this word was used for work which left one so weary, it was as if the person had taken a beating. So Paul is saying, in order to achieve this specific goal or purpose, I work to the point where I am ready to faint from exhaustion. To the point where I'm so weary, it feels as if I'd taken a beating. And you know, Paul knew what that felt like, eh? He had endured many beatings. So what on earth is this goal or purpose that he's laboring towards? Let's go one verse back. Colossians 1, 28, 29. It says, We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. The NIV says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. To this end, I labor. To this end, I labor. So Paul is saying the goal of his, well, the goal, the purpose of his laboring, his toiling, his weariness is to present every man mature or perfect in Christ. But why? What does this mean? And why is Paul, why is it so important for Paul to achieve this? He's willing to almost kill himself. For that, we have to look at two words. So stay with me. We can look at the words present and mature or perfect, as it is in the, in the New King James. To present, listen to this, it means to yield or surrender yourself to another. To yield or surrender yourself to another, plus to place yourself at their disposal, to present yourself for service. In the Old Testament, it was a technical term for when a, when a priest placed an offering on the altar. So it's as if Paul is picturing himself as a, priest, as a, as a priest offering sacrifices on the altar, but not dead animals, living saints. So to present yourself is to completely yield and surrender to him, presenting yourself for service. That is present. What about mature? Well, as you can imagine, it means the obvious. Complete, fully developed, full grown, etc. But, but, in the mature, it, oh, sorry, 
in the Greek, mature, also means to attain or achieve the proper end or purpose of one's existence. To attain or achieve the proper end or purpose of one's existence. In this context, it refers to becoming spiritually mature, in other words, full-grown, in other words, like Christ. Because maturity in one word is Christ-like. And so becoming Christ-like or mature speaks directly to our existence. Do you think the scriptures support this? Let's take a look. Romans 8.29 says the following. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, or the image of his Son, so that he might, might be the firstborn among many brethren, or brothers. Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up in him, into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself, itself up in love as each part does its work. So Paul is saying, I work to the point where I'm ready to faint from exhaustion. To the point where I'm so weary, it feels as if I've taken a beating in order to bring you to a point where you completely yield and surrender to Him, placing yourself at His service as a living sacrifice in order to attain to the purpose of your existence, which is to become Christ-like. So think about it. Becoming Christ-like is not a byproduct of my Christian walk. It is the very aim. It is the very purpose of my Christian walk. I almost want to say, Selah, let's just, you know, pause and reflect on that. So Paul says, okay, I labor, I work very hard, <coughs> excuse me, to present every man mature in Christ. But how does he go about doing that? How does, he, how does he go about achieving it? The very beginning of Colossians 1.28, if I can have it on the screen again, please. We proclaim him. The New King James says, him we preach, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Him we preach. Paul didn't proclaim politics or philosophy or a system of theology. He didn't preach himself. 
his opinions or traditions. He preached the person of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul writes and he says, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Paul proclaimed a person because Christianity is Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is eternal life. There's, a, there's an American uh, Baptist pastor called Evie Hill. He tells the story of an elderly lady in his congregation, whom they called 1800, as in 1800. No one knew how old 1800 was, but they knew she was very old, so they called her 1800. Now, 1800 was very hard on unsuspecting preachers, because what she would do is she would sit in the front row, much like Desri. Desri, you were at least 1920. And what she would do is she would sit in the front row, and when the preacher started or starts, she would shout, lift him up, lift him up, referring to Christ. And if the, well, if the preacher, well, after a few minutes, if she thought there wasn't enough of Christ in the sermon, she would again shout, but this time louder, lift him up, lift him up. And if the preacher did not lift him up, he was in for a long, hard day. <laughs> the gospel is not what we preach. It is whom we preach. The gospel is not what we preach. It is whom we preach. Lift him up. <laughs> Cheap blow. So Paul is saying, I work to the point why I'm ready to faint from exhaustion, to the point where I'm so weary, it feels as if I had taken a beating in order to bring you to a point where you completely yield and surrender to Him, placing yourself at His disposal as a living sacrifice in order to attain to the purpose of your existence, which is to become Christ-like. And I do it by preaching the person of Jesus Christ. What should our response be to this? What should our response be? If becoming Christ-like is so important, if it speaks to the purpose of our existence, what should our response be? Very quickly, just three things. Firstly, we need to present ourselves to Him. We need to present ourselves to him. We read in uh, Colossians 1.28 just now where Paul says he labors to present everyone mature in Christ. But the Bible makes it clear, me and you, we also have a responsibility ourselves to present ourselves to him. We also have that responsibility. Let me give you two examples. Romans 12 verse 1, very well known. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or logical service. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now remember we said, to present yourself means to yield or surrender yourself to another. To place yourself at their disposal. Why 
do we need to present ourselves to him? Why do we need to yield? Why do we need to surrender? Why do we need to place ourselves at his disposal? Why? Because he will not transform into his image that which we don't surrender. <clears throat> In other words, what we don't surrender cannot become Christ-like. In, in October last year, my, my eldest daughter, she's, her name is Abigail, she's seven, she was diagnosed with something called performance anxiety. It's a, it's a bit of a long story, but in a nutshell, her, her perfectionistic personality, in other words, she's very hard on herself, she places high demands on herself, coupled with the, with the COVID lockdown and restrictions, created a perfect storm for her, for her as, a, as a little extrovert. Now, her, her anxiety manifested itself in the form of a facial twitch. She did this. I don't know if everyone can see. It, it's actually worse than this. A, a severe type of blinking. Now, eventually, we ended up at an at a educational psychologist, which in itself is a, was a miracle and a testimony in its own. And this, uh, this lady really helped us with a number of techniques to help Abigail. And one of them was a way to bring her anxiety from here, her heart, to her head. And it would help her to verbalize it so we can talk about it and process it. So what we did, and pretty much still do every evening, is she comes and she sits with me on our bed. And I debrief her day. So I ask her specific questions about every aspect of a day while observing her body language, specifically her blinking, to see whether her response to an event or a person leads to increased anxiety levels. In other words, if I ask a question about something and her blinking increases, I know there's anxiety there, okay? So I delve deeper and I get her to talk about it and I help her to process it. Now fast forward to, uh, that was last October, fast forward to about February this year and one evening we were having our normal, normal daily debrief, and I asked her about break time. How was break time today? Seemingly insignificant question. And suddenly her, her blinking increased greatly. So there's, there was great underlying anxiety, and she started to cry. Uh, sobbing is, is a better description. And through her tears, she explained to me that she was all alone at break time. Nobody... Nobody wanted to sit or, or play with her. And I said, don't worry, I'm going to pray with you. I'm, I'm going to pray for you. And I figured out, uh, you know, through the debrief, it had been going on for a few days. And I missed it. And uh, so I prayed for her and I said, you know what? God has got a family. So we're going to trust that he gives you good friends. And she's, a, she's an extrovert. You know, so she intuitively knows how to connect with people and engage. So I, I struggled to understand why this was happening. But... I said, we're going to trust God. And for the next month, literally almost every evening, when I asked about break time, the blinking would increase. She would cry, and she would explain to me how she is so alone at school. And you know, it's hard every night to hear your child say and, and, and hear them cry that they are alone. But every night we prayed, and we kept, and we kept trusting God. And after about a month... The one evening, same scenario, how was break time, alone, crying. 
And just as I was about to pray for her, the Holy Spirit prompted me to explain something. It was such a Holy Spirit moment, I guess. And I explained to her, and I said, Abigail, do you know what? Jesus was all alone. He was all alone on the cross. He was forsaken so that me and you would never have to be alone. So when you're sitting there break time and there's no friends around you, you are not alone. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You are not alone. So when I was, when I was done, I looked at her and I was just praying, Lord, I hope she understands. And she looked at me and her response was, Dad, I want to get baptized. And I nearly fell off the bed. I thought, how do you, how do you go from being alone at break time, crying, to I'm going to get baptized? I mean, the, the topic wasn't even part of the discussion. But I thought, okay, God must be doing something. So I asked, okay, Abigail, why? Why do you want to get baptized? And then she, she thought for a good long moment, which is very much unlike her, if you know her. She's very impulsive. You know, responds quickly. Not at all like a dad. She thought, and then she looked at me and she said, I have given Jesus my heart. Now I need to give him everything. It was her way of saying, I want to present myself to him. I want to completely yield and surrender. I know him as my savior. Now I need to confess him as Lord. You know, the next day, when I picked her up at school, I, I couldn't wait until I evening debrief to ask her about, uh, um, about break time. So she gets in the car, we're driving off, and I'm looking at her in the mirror. And I say, Abigail, how was break time? And she looks at me and she says, I was all alone. And you know, my heart starts to sink within me. But then she smiled and she said, but it's okay. He was with me. We need to present ourselves to him. We need to yield. We need to surrender so that he can transform us into the image of his son. Secondly, we need to seek, behold, and obey. We need to seek, behold, and obey. Very well-known scripture, Matthew 7, verse 7. It says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Now, seeking implies a desire for something of great value. I, I desire something of great value. But it's actually a bit more than that. Because you see, seeking is asking plus acting. Asking plus acting. In other words, to seek is to earnestly ask and then to make an active attempt to find that something of great value. A good example is where Jesus speaks in, in Matthew 13, verse 45, where he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. When you seek something, you rearrange your priorities so that you can search for what you desire until you find it. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.18 Excuse me. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Where seeking implies a desire for something of great value and then an active attempt to try and find it, beholding means I now make a careful study of it. 
I make a careful study of that thing of great value. I contemplate it. I make a careful study. It's not just a casual glance. I make a careful study. You see, people often ask, or in fact, it's probably the question Christians most often ask, how do I change? How do I really change? The only way lasting change comes into our lives is when we are transformed by spending time with God. You see, beholding is a way of becoming. Beholding is a way of becoming. In other words, you become like that which you behold. You take on the characteristics, the values and qualities of that which you most cherish and to which you devote your heart and your mind. Warren Viusper wrote, When the people of God look into the Word of God and see the glory of God, the Spirit of God transforms them to be like the Son of God. So we seek Jesus. We seek to know Him. This desire drives us to the Word where we search for Him, actively endeavoring to find Him. The Holy Spirit comes and He illuminates our hearts and our minds and He shows us Jesus. We behold Him and we make a careful study of Him. And as we do this, the Holy Spirit starts to transform us into that which we behold. We slowly and surely, slowly but surely, become more and more like Christ. But there's a caveat to this. There's a, there's a condition, a warning even. James 1, 22, it says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently, in other words, beholding him, into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If I'm seeking him and beholding him, but I'm not obeying him, I'm actually only listening, actively deceiving myself. The very first part of verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. If I seek and I behold, but I do not obey, I'm only listening, deceiving myself. And instead of becoming spiritually mature, I actually become spiritually deceived. And according to Hebrews 3.13, my heart is hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Obedience is how we know that we know him. Obedience is how we know that we know him. 1 John 2 verse 3, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But wherever keep his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. To be transformed into his image, we have to present ourselves. We have to surrender, yes. But we also need to desire him. Sorry, we need to seek him. We need to desire him and actively attempt to find him. We need to behold him. We need to make a careful study of him. But we also need to obey him. We need to keep his word. We need to seek, behold, and obey. Thirdly and lastly, we need to press on to maturity. We need to press on to maturity. Hebrews 6 verse 1 says, 
Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and our faith in God. Yes. I like how the New York, well, sorry. I like how the New American Standard Bible translates this. It says, let us press on to maturity. A few weeks ago, I was driving my kids to school one morning early. And Laura, my youngest, she's five. She's a, well, she's a chatterbox. She talks all the time. All the time. And we're driving, and she suddenly pipes up, and she says, Dad, do you know what? I never want to get married. You know why? Because when you're married, you have to kiss your husband with saliva on your lips. <laughs> and that's just, that's just gross, man. She says it just like that. You know, and I'm just laughing and thinking to myself, there'll be no kissing for you of any kind before you're 21. <laughs> and then she continues and she says, you know what? I never want to have kids. But she stops there. So now I'm curious and slightly concerned. But <laughs> so I go, okay, Laura, tell me, why don't you want to have kids? She says, well, it's just too much hard work. I see how you and mom struggle with us. So I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> kids. Now, all of this that we're speaking about, the presenting yourself, the seeking, beholding, and obeying, and now the pressing onto maturity, you might be sitting here and thinking, that's a lot of hard work. Or, it's a great struggle, much like my five-year-old views parenting. If that is you, I've got good news. I've got good news, because... The term to press onto maturity conveys the picture. It conveys the image of a sailboat on the ocean who in itself can do nothing to move forward unless the wind comes and blows in the sails. It doesn't matter how hard the boat tries. It doesn't matter how much the boat wants it. If the wind does not come and blow in the sails, that boat ain't going nowhere. To press on emphasizes the exertion of power on a person from an outside source and the willingness of that person to surrender continuously to that outside influence. Does it make sense? So to press on to maturity means to surrender and let the Holy Spirit do His work. Like a sailboat on the ocean who moves forward when the wind comes and blows in the sails, so we are carried forward to maturity. We become more and more Christ-like as we surrender to the Holy Spirit. And you know, Paul was very much aware of this as he wrote to the church in Colossians. Can we have Colossians 1, 28, 29 for the last time, please? It says, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which he so powerfully works in me. Paul knew the only way you could labor the way he did was by the, or through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying, I work to the point where I'm ready to faint from exhaustion, 
to the point where I'm so weary, it feels as if I had taken a beating in order to bring you to a point where you completely yield and surrender to Him, placing yourselves at His disposal as a living sacrifice in order to attain to the purpose of your existence, which is to become Christ-like. I do this by preaching the person of Jesus Christ, not by my own power, but by surrendering to the Holy Spirit. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Like Paul, we have to say, to this end, to this end, I labor. Amen.